0: We're going to be looking at chapter 34 forward. This is the parallel with what we read. We'll be looking at the end of the story as well. As we prepare to move into the exilic books, what I want to do is to give you a couple of insights into the place of where we're going to be studying In the beginning of the Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All these books are written by Moses. Until you get to the end of Deuteronomy, there's this weird passage. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses is writing, and all of a sudden it says he dies. And you might wonder, you know, is it sort of like he's writing about his death as he's dying? A rather dramatic last breath? Or, is it the case that he's prophesying about his own death? Or is it the case that somebody else is writing? Well, we know those books are overwhelmingly written by Moses. Jesus says that these books are written by Moses. But the end of the book is written by Joshua. And this introduces us to something that's going to happen over and over again in the history books. In the history books, you have a book being written, and you have the end of it being picked up by a prophet. And a part of the self-canonization process that we see, God gives a word, and it's immediately adopted into canon. We do not wait for some counsel. We do not wait for it to be approved. It comes from the, of, it comes from the mouth of God. It is the word of God. It is authoritative instantaneously. We do not need any human arbiter to tell us that it is the authority. It is God's word. And so, when we have Joshua writing the end of the book, it's being canonized at the very moment that it's written. The book of Judges and the end of the book of Joshua, We see the end of chapter 24 of Joshua, and it talks about the death of Joshua. Same question, there's the mind. What is it with these prophets and they're dying while writing? Well, that's not what happened there either. It's written by the The end of it is written by Samuel. And when you get to the book of Ruth, which is also written by Samuel, the the book of Ruth has a portion about the genealogy of David. The book of Ruth is written by Samuel, and we have that portion being prophetically finished with the genealogies when David is made king. Now, when you get to the end of the Samuel and King's section, you find that the end of the Samuel and King's chunk matches with the end of the book of Jeremiah. And that's because Jeremiah is the finisher of that collection. And so it is the traditional position of the church in the Old and New Testaments that Jeremiah is the writer of Kings, or at least of a portion of it, and so we find over and over again that historical books bear the marks of canonical writing. And we get to 1st and 2nd Chronicles and Ezra and 1st and 2nd Chronicles overlaps with all of that text that we just talked about, Genesis through 2nd Kings. 1st and 2nd Chronicles covers the same stuff. And the end of 2 Chronicles matches up with the very beginning of Ezra. And that's showing to us the fact that there's a connection there. Ezra, as viewed historically, is the author of Chronicles, and of Ezra. And so he bears particular work as having been an important orderer of the canonical books. And we see... There's a work of editing that occurs by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We see that in the scriptures themselves. Like Proverbs very plainly makes it clear that Hezekiah is organizing and pulling together text from Solomon. And so this work, this curating work, is not a denial of the inspiration of scripture. It's not a denial that there's a preservation of the scripture. It's the idea that God supernaturally, providentially, by his prophets, both gives the Scriptures and prepares them to be appropriate for the age. And so he has made sure to have the Scriptures be put together in the way that he wants at the time that he wants for the age that he is creating. And so we look at the end of 2 Chronicles today and we will see this moving in. We're going to be looking at Ezra because Ezra is the first of the exilic books. We're not doing that today, but we'll be getting there. And so we'll be looking at Ezra, and we'll be looking at Haggai and Zechariah, and we're going to be looking at Esther and Nehemiah. There's an order to the way that those are going to be dealt with, they're dealing with this chunk of time in between when there's the destruction of the temple and when you see the rebuilding of the temple and you see the closing out of the canon of the Old Testament. And so at the end of this story in Second Chronicles, this true story, we are introduced to Josiah, who is a high point. He is viewed as greater than the kings that have come before, and yet there is this blazing crash right after. So let's consider what is given here for us and let's look at and consider the background as we come into the exilic books. Second Chronicles 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He's very concerned about what David, as a prophet, had delivered. To see reformation. From the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Okay, so this makes him 15, 16 years old. When he begins to seek the God of his father David, something has happened. The word has come to him. He has been converted, and he is looking. To grow in wisdom. In the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. So this is when he's twenty. Now, let's just think about this for a second. You have an eight year old king. You can see historically, generally what happens when you have children kings, there's a regent. Josiah is studying and waiting for his regency to end. He is waiting for him to have the throne. And at the age of 16, he is converted and seeks carefully to grow in the knowledge of God. And for those four years, from the age of 16 until the age of his majority, when he was counted a man in Israel at the age of 20, he was waiting to do righteousness from the throne. And when he came to the throne, as soon as he had power, as soon as he was dealt with as a man in Israel, he immediately starts to tear down the idols. They broke down the altars of the baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images... He broke in pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He's defiling them with death and defiling those dead bodies with the death of idolatry that they had practiced in life. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem by making those altars altars that couldn't be used anymore. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. When he'd broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Everything in his domain. All the places where he had access. He pulled these things down as a magistrate. In the 18th year of his reign, so this is six years later, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, Maasiah, the governor of the city, and Joah the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So he's spending all of this time warring against the idols tearing down the false worship. He is so taken up with this. I mean, think about this. He is surrounded by idolatry. The temple itself is full of idolatry. Jerusalem is surrounded by idolatry. And we read in in 2 Kings that he tore down altars that Solomon had built. Solomon in the 900s Josiah around The 600s. Over 300 years, these altars had stood that Solomon had built for his foreign wives in Jerusalem, for them to worship their foreign gods. Nobody had destroyed them utterly before. Even Hezekiah. All this time, perhaps it was the antiquity of them, the historic value of them. Whatever the excuse was, Josiah was unmoved and he moved them until they were turned into ash and the new location was the tops of the graves of those who sacrificed to those idols. When they came to Hilkiah, what had happened is there's this new movement from the destruction of all of this idolatry, that he has to spend six years, the first six years of his reign, focused on the tearing down of the idols. And then he has resources that he redistributes into positive building reformation. Perhaps in the beginning of his reign, the criticism might have been, "Josiah is so negative, always tearing idols down. But this negative ministry of Josiah is in order to enable a positive ministry of building. When they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, They delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin. So look at this. The remnants of the tribes are gathering here around Josiah's reign. We know earlier on Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians, but the remnants of those tribes are gathering there, and they are gathering around this king. And so you have elements of the tribes of the northern kingdom that live, the remnant of them. And they are working and supporting in what Josiah is doing. These are the things they brought back to the house of Jerusalem. Verse 10, Then they put it in the hand of the four men who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. So there's this chain of of operation, The money that's being safeguarded. It's being taken by multiple witnesses to be taken to the temple so that it can be used, and it's being distributed out in wages and for the purchasing of tools. This work is being done. The establishment of the church when it has been torn down, the endowment of the church in a time of emergency to rebuild it, Verse 11, They gave it to the craftsmen and builders to buy hewn stone and timber for beams and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites, of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, of the sons of the Kohathites, to supervise. Others of the Levites all of whom were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did work in any kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Why, why would this happen? Well, When you're trying to make room for valuable things, sometimes you have to start moving things around. Ever done spring cleaning or ever buy anything or receive anything that's neat and you try to go, how do I get to store this thing? A bunch of money comes in and now they have to make room. And as they're moving things around, as the money gets brought in and gives an impetus to be able to move things, there is a discovery of the ancient scrolls, of the word of God which had been destroyed along with the destruction of the temple and so much else by wicked kings. The persecution had been so great that it appeared as though there was a loss of the Word of God, and yet it had been preserved in the temple itself, right under the noses of those who persecuted the church. And so in simply moving things and bringing money in, there's a finding of this text verse 14. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Here we have a teaching from the prophet Ezra, captured for us in 2 Chronicles, that the beginning of the scriptures, the Torah, is written by Moses. We have, Chronicles says that. We have Jesus saying it's the book of the law written by Moses. If you reject the Mosaic authorship of the Torah, you have to reject Jesus, and you have to reject Ezra. You have to reject all the scriptures. The authority of the beginning of the Bible is tied up in the whole of the Bible. Verse fifteen. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, "I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord." And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king words saying. All that was committed to your servants, they are doing, and they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. At this grand moment. And I think this book is Deuteronomy, very specifically, it could be the whole Torah but it has to at least be Deuteronomy. Because what we see afterwards is a response to the curses. And the curses that are laid out here are curses both in terms of what it says in Leviticus and what it says in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy restates the Levitical curses. Shaphan read the book before the king. Verse 19, Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahicham, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those of the king, right? so Hilkiah and those the king had appointed went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her to that effect. Then she answered them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. Now to some extent, obviously, to hear that you will not see the calamity is some comfort. But to know that there is still wrath and curse to be poured out on the land, on your people, you see how that might take this, the wind out of your sails for all of the building work that you're doing? And the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. book of Deuteronomy is dominated by a covenanting act. And the response that Josiah has is not to throw up his hands, not to give up, but his response is to seek to do with the few days that he has all that he can to turn the hearts of the people to the God of the Bible and to lead them in righteousness and to repent Well, there is yet time. So there is this corporate gathering to hear the Word of God read. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord. He leads the people in covenanting, in swearing to uphold the covenant with the people. To follow the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart and all His soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. In 2 Kings, this is a stand for the covenant. This idea that they had to stand up and swear to uphold the covenant. He is engaged in an act of national covenanting. And he calls the people to repent and to seek to uphold the covenant and to look to the Lord who is merciful. So this is a national repentance. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. This act of re-covenanting in the old covenant. This is not a new covenant in so far as There's not totally new terms, not totally new things. It's it's the covenant that was made with Moses. And they are reaffirming that covenant. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are re-covenanting in the new covenant. Baptism brings people into that new covenant. The administration of it outwardly. It's an act of covenanting. And in the civil sphere, it is appropriate to repent and to covenant. 33. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. So he is using his authority to punish crimes and to praise what is good and to seek to uphold the covenant. So here we have a renewal ritual for this covenant. Chapter 35, Now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the fourteenth day of the first month. We have just studied Passover. This is a reestablishing of it when it had died away. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord, seeing the church settled when there is a chaos. Then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built, it shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders This seems to be the last appearance of the ark. Now serve the Lord your God and his people, Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. So we have the instruction from Moses about how to keep the Passover. And then there's the written instruction in the change of administration. We go from the tabernacle to the temple. And so there are some changes about how things are administered. Verse 5, And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the Father's houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the Father's houses of the Levites. And so there's recognition of households in Passover. We saw that in the original institution so, slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So, recognition of the institution of Passover given by the prophetic work of Moses. You see here how in 2 Chronicles, King Josiah, those people that are reforming with him, Ezra, who is reporting this, are all asserting the authority of Moses and of David and of Solomon and the prophetic word that's been captured. The Reformation is according to this. And we have here this idea that in this covenant feast there's a consecrating of those who participate of themselves, a making holy of themselves. Verse 7. Then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings for all who were present to the number of 30,000 as well as 300 cattle. Sorry, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. So whether this is just for the poor, or whether it's for every household, he is seeking to help to make sure that this can be kept. To initiate it and saying, I'm not just laying burdens on you, but I'm giving from my own wealth that you can do this. This is a model for us. Jesus talks about how the Pharisees would often just lay burdens on people. When you can approach the law of God in such a way as to just lay burdens on people, but you can also approach the law of God saying, this is good for you. This will be helpful to you. I believe this so much and care so much for you that I will help to carry this burden with you, but you need to learn to carry it yourself. Verse 8. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests, and to the Levites. Look at what a good king Josiah was. He had leaders around him who were willing to sacrifice. He had pulled together a team of godly men to work with him. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings. 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Also, Conaniah, his brothers, Shemiah and Nethanel and Hashabiah and Jael and Josabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. We see leaders of the state and leaders of the church, all of them being willing to give to the people to help them to be able to participate, to help them to be able to keep the Passover. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places, and the Levites in their divisions according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands, while the Levites skinned the animals. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the lay people, to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the cattle. Now you see things, that says things like, according to the king's command, and you go, oh, is this, is the king able to just make stuff up? And then it says, no, according to Moses' command. In other words, the king was seeking to see reformation in accordance with what had already been revealed. Authority supporting authority. The church seeking to do what it ought to do. The state seeking to do what it ought to do. The word of God being acknowledged as the authority over both. Thirteen. Also they roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance. But the other holy offerings they boiled in pots, in cauldrons, and in pans, and divided them quickly among all the lay people. Okay, so you have the peace offerings and you have the Passover offerings. They're being dealt with properly. All of this being done properly. It's not being done in a mixed up way. They're properly differentiating, properly maintaining the different elements of worship. Verse 14, Then afterward they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the son of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. They're working to serve the other people first and then themselves. There's a servant leadership on display in the church. Therefore the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. And the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places according to the command of David. You know what they did during the offerings? They sang psalms. This is continual sacrificing that's going on for some time. And the singers singing psalms as this is going. Asaph, Heman, and Judithan, the king's seer, Also, the gatekeepers were at each gate. They're keeping unclean out and making sure that there's a good order of things. They did not have to leave their portion. Sorry, they did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So the Levites, acting as a sort of Old Covenant diaconal group, or helping to support the priests, helping to support the, the people who are running security, the security team. Right? You have that work, this, this ongoing effort being done, and the work of trying to make sure that everybody can do their job, everybody's supplied for. There is this service, every part of the body nurturing and nourishing the other parts of the body, using the spiritual gifts that they have to serve. Verse sixteen. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. Did he invent it? No. He took it from Moses and from David and from Solomon. And they gave it by the authority of God. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Eight years into his reign with a regent, he came to know God. Twelve years into his reign... He was finally able to exercise power. And he did so with vigor to do righteousness quickly. On the 18th year, he's able to have so much positive built that he's able to keep the Passover feast more precisely than it has been done since the days of Samuel. No king, even David. Verse 20, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. God had sent an Egyptian king to go wage a war against another foreign emperor. And Josiah is warned to not go engage. He is engaging in a war that is not against his people. And it ends with his death. You might think, why? Why do something so stupid? You know if you die, the kingdom's going to come to an end. There's going to be destruction and curse that comes on you. Why? Why disobey at that point? And ask yourself, why have you ever committed any of the sins that you know violate the word of God? You had some stupid reason. He had some stupid reason. This is the weakness of men. So much good can be done and so much good can be thrown away. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. Interesting thing when foreign kings are used as prophets. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and all Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. We read about a list of specific idols that he destroyed. When we were reading 2 Kings, did you notice that list? that talks about the chariots of the sun and all these other odd things. All of these various idolatry pieces that were throughout the land. It has a list of the idols that he destroyed. It's very common in the annals of kings to list out peoples you've conquered. Josiah's special honor is that he has a list of false gods he's conquered. Demons whose places of worship He shattered and scattered their ashes over the dead that worshiped them. They are the gods of the dead. The God of the Bible is the God of the living. Second Chronicles 36. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. A little bit shorter than 31 years. Now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. It's made him a hostage. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, and what was found against him, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Here we are, less than 30 years after the rebuilding of the temple. Not rebuilding, the refurbishing of the temple, the restoring of the proper worship, and it is filled with all these desecrations and abominations. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised (coughs) they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. "'Till there was no remedy. "'Therefore he brought against them "'the king of the Chaldeans, "'who killed their young men with the sword "'in the house of their sanctuary, "'and had no compassion on young man or virgin, "'on the aged or the weak. "'He gave them all into his hand. "'And all the articles from the house of God, "'great and small, "'the treasures of the house of the Lord, "'and the treasures of the king "'and of his leaders.' All these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as they as she lay desolate, she kept her Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. In 605 B.C., Daniel was taken, made a eunuch, And you see his story in the book of Daniel. Afterwards, you see the replacement of other kings. There's these sort of three exiles, each time in response to some sort of resistance to Nebuchadnezzar. And the final destruction that occurs. The final destruction that occurs of Jerusalem and the temple leaves it desolate, leaves many dead and takes off many captives. And so we're left there. We're left with this destruction. And we're left with the context that the people there did not keep the Sabbaths. They did not keep the land Sabbaths. And God will have the land have its rest. And so if the people would not voluntarily rest, then he would cause the land to rest by slaying them and removing them that the land would rest and we're left with this little statement at the end of 2nd Chronicles now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia huh? Babylon seems to just kind of be gone it's like it was an empire that was just there for a day And now it's the next and it's gone. You read Daniel and what you find is one empire replaces another, replaces another, replaces another until a rock comes and shatters them. And that rock is the kingdom of God. And that rock grinds to dust the empires of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar's great land, his powerful land, Is already a shadow, already a memory, and here we are in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is, among, who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Go up where? Go up to be a part of the building of the temple. We get to this place of punishment. We get to this destruction of the temple. And we're left with a statement of hope about the rebuilding. And in case that wasn't clear enough for you, Ezra picks up his next book. Just go to the beginning of the next book. Just go to the right. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up. Everything, jot for jot, the same up till then. And then it carries on. This is Ezra showing us the continuous nature of that revelation that's been given. And it carries on and explains for us. Go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. You may recall, in order to build the tabernacle, the people of Israel plundered Egypt as they came out, by causing the people of Egypt to want to give them gold and silver. God did that. He turned their hearts to give them favor. God turns the hearts of kings And what he has done here is he has made Cyrus cause the rebuilding of the temple, and he causes the people of the Persian Empire to give to the people of Judah. And so there is a sort of second exodus out of the exile, a calling of God's people out. And that occurs, rather than having to destroy an army like happened with Pharaoh, here God simply turns the heart of a king. And so we see God able to do both. He can raise men up to destroy them, or he can cause men to bow before him. And in either case, he will do his will in the heavens and in the earth and under the sea. And so we have his purposes done. And we are reminded here that Josiah was not the Messiah king, but he pointed to one. And the temple is not the ultimate fulfillment of the people of God, but it points to it. And so we're left here now with this decree to rebuild the temple and to see the people of God gathered. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.